How was your week? Did you all have a good week? You know, uh, it was the 4th of July. Did you have a good week with fun activities, good food, family, friends, fireworks, all that stuff? Dina and I actually had a really good week because we went on a uh, cruise to San Francisco to celebrate our 35th wedding anniversary, which just happens to coincide with uh, Independence Day. And I always refer to it as Interdependence Day because, well, that's what I celebrate on uh, the 4th. And there's always fireworks on our anniversary, just so you know. Um, but we, we got to hike in the, uh, the Muir Woods National Monument, surrounded by these towering redwoods. And we enjoyed the, all the pleasures and indulgences of a uh, cruise at sea. It was actually an absolutely blessed time. And then we just heard uh, you know, Cliff and Christina, they, they, did, they got back from their vacation also, uh, visiting granddaughters and some other people probably, cruising the land of this beautiful country on their long road trip. And I'm have no doubt that theirs was a blessed time as well. And anything, anything else happened this week? Anything celebratory, uh, exciting? Was there any other blessed events this week? Oh, oh yeah, uh, Baby Fern um, was ushered into the world. And of course, no greater blessed event could any of us experienced than that which uh, Brian and Francesca experienced, a healthy baby girl. Certainly God has blessed them. But then that blessed event wasn't without its uh, trouble, was it? Brian, Francesca, and Fern aren't here because they are um, recovering from a a difficult delivery and, and subsequent complications that Uh, Francesca is dealing with. And possibly yours wasn't a good week at all. Maybe you got um, some bad news. Maybe you're facing some illness, financial hardship, other woe, something fell through, disappointment. It wasn't a stellar week. And maybe even your entire life may seem like it's one constant series of trouble after trouble. And even though, you know, I, in my 60 years of life, feel that I've enjoyed a uh, good amount of blessing and prosperity, there have been difficult times of of, uh, suffering and woe in there as well. And it's like these times show up, they're unexpected. They don't come with an explanation. It's not like I was being suffering the consequence of some obvious sin or being punished for, by God for some transgression. In fact, if we look at the lives of genuinely faithful and godly people, oftentimes that we see that they are stricken and in dire straits, having to endure things that we would suppose God would reserve to inflict only upon wicked people. And then we look around and see these worldly people, and they 
have no faith in God. They have no trust in Him. They don't give Him thanks for anything. And we see them enjoying all this outward prosperity. And if I'm honest, that strikes me as a little bit unfair. I mean, I'm not alone in this, am I? We all feel that occasionally, don't we? I mean, if God is to bless anyone, shouldn't He bless the people that love Him and seek after Him? And if God is to inflict suffering on anyone, shouldn't He inflict it upon those who reject Him and defy Him? Now, if you can remember way back in March, last time I uh, had the privilege of preaching, I asked a question, and that was, why would God select a man like Jeroboam to be the king? first king of the northern kingdom of Israel, given the fact that it was Jeroboam that you know, almost immediately instituted idolatry and sin in that nation. And I spent a fair amount of that time in that sermon talking about God's providence, his governance of all things from the greatest to the least by his infallible wisdom and knowledge and the free and immutable counsel of his own will to the praise of the glory of his wisdom, power, justice, mercy, and goodness. But wouldn't the goodness of God's providence imply that those who live life without regard to God and his commands would face failure and struggle and defeat, while those who seek after him and his ways should find success and victory in our endeavors? And shouldn't we expect to be rewarded for seeking the right path. Why then is this often not the case? Why is it so difficult for us to reconcile how God dispenses His providence with what we see happening in the world? I often wonder why I have to suffer trials and struggles and all this stuff in my life whether it be something big or small, when my friend, who has never shown any interest in God or his ways, has such an easy go of it? And why is it that the moment I even consider doing something that is less than completely upright and honest, am I suddenly besieged with all this guilt and conviction while this other guy gets away with lying, cheating, stealing, and he walks around like he doesn't have a care in the world? Is all my striving to be good and faithful even worth it? I mean, how, how are we to reconcile the successes, the wealth, the prosperity of the wicked, even as they scornfully mock God and cruelly harass the righteous with struggles and calamities and oppression weighed down upon those who diligently seek to practice righteousness? Well, today, as we continue in our summer in the Psalms, we're going to look at Psalm 73, which is a reflection upon this conundrum, this troubling contradiction. In this psalm, which is attributed to Asaph, who was the chief Levite musician appointed by David, he confesses the struggle that he had in dealing with these questions. He explains the temptation that it led him to, then he goes to describe the victory that he gained over that temptation. And finally, 
he's going to declare his realization of the true benefits we have in the Lord. So we will look at this psalm in three parts. The first part is going to be the first 14 verses where he's going to explain his temptation. So follow along with me in your Bibles, or it's going to be up here on the screen as well. Beginning in verse 1. Truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. Okay, I'm going to stop right there for a second, because Asaph is going to begin this psalm with an important guiding principle. And even though he's going to be spending the time you know, in these first set of verses explaining the struggles, he's going to start out with what is essentially his conclusion at the end of the matter. But he has a very good reason for doing so. Because picture what Asaph has done. He didn't just sit down and write out this psalm. He had spent a long time contemplating the prosperity of sinful, wicked men, men who were unrepentant, and then he had juxtaposed that in his own mind against the sufferings that he and the people of Israel, God's chosen people, had to endure. This internal struggle led him to face a particular temptation. And after finally attaining victory over that temptation, he settles himself down to write this psalm. But he first, at the very beginning, stops to check himself because of what he is about to say. The very fact of God's goodness towards his people is a great guiding principle which we must always resolve to live by because it is the surest defense against the temptations that Satan will throw against us. Because even the strongest believer's faith is liable to be shaken by the storms that may come our way, but let's never forget, we must never forget, that we do have ample proof that God is indeed good. So Asaph is going to set this principle down at the very beginning as a sure anchor before he begins the account of the temptation that assaulted him. Now let's go on to the rest of the verses. Beginning in verse 2. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped. For I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. For they have no pangs until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. They are not in trouble as others are. They are not stricken like the rest of mankind. Therefore pride is their necklace. Violence covers them as a garment. Their eyes swell out through fatness. Their hearts overflow with follies. They scoff and speak with malice. Loftily they threaten oppression. They see, they set their mouths against heavens, the heavens, and their tongues strut through the earth. Therefore, his people turn back to them and find no fault in them. And they say, how can God know? Is there knowledge in the Most High? Behold, these are the wicked. Always at ease, they increase in riches. All in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. For all day long I have been stricken and rebuked every morning. And thus Asaph confesses the nature of his temptation. Verse 3, For I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. 
And what did, does this temptation lead to? It led him to consider giving up righteousness and faith altogether. It almost caused him to stumble and slip. And what, it is, what is it about the wicked that is so envi enviable? It's their prosperity, their ease, their riches. And certainly we can all relate. We look around us and, all, and we see foolish and worldly people enjoying great outward prosperity, seemingly not having the least share of life's troubles while enjoying the greatest share of its comfort, comforts. Look at those who have the greatest influence in our society. Do they not wield it without the least regard or fear of God? And they get along just fine in the world. Prominent figures in media and government and entertainment as well as our neighbors and co-workers, friends and acquaintances, rivals and enemies, all of them enjoy financial prosperity, good health, nice homes, beautiful yards, the nicest cars, and the most lavish vacations. Then taking pride in the bounty they enjoy, they attribute it to their own worthiness or their good character. Never once they show gratitude to the God who gave them the life that they enjoy so much. Meanwhile, they mock those who preach righteousness. They gloat over the failures and trials of the faith faithful. They seek to silence and suppress those who battle ungodliness. It does not seem fair, does not seem right, does not seem just, does it? I mean, certainly the Bible teaches that God blesses the righteous and curses the wicked, does it not? And shouldn't the righteous be the recipients of God's blessings in their endeavors, while those who practice unrighteousness experience judgments and failures? That would make sense to us. And in this very contradiction, this very conundrum, is what caused this, the psalmist to confess that his feet almost stumbled and his steps nearly slipped. For what his eyes saw in the world in the lives of the ungodly, actually made him envious. He began to wonder if these mockers of God in heaven weren't right after all. Does God not know what's going on? Does God not pay attention? Does God not care? When confronted with seeing so much prosperity in the lives of ungodly, and contrasting that with the suffering he and other godly people endure, He's tempted to give up his religion as futile. Behold, these are the wicked, always at ease. They increase in riches. All in vain I have kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. For all the day long I have been stricken and rebuked every morning. Have you ever felt that way? Wouldn't it be easier sometimes just to live your life as the rest of those in the world do? His temptation is to abandon his faith as futile and useless. But as we read further, we see that he's given victory over this temptation. So let's look at verses 15 through 20. If I had said, I will speak thus, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. But when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task 
until I went into the sanctuary of God. Then I discerned their end. Truly, you set them on, in slippery places. You make them fall to ruin. How they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by tears. Like a dream when one awakes, O Lord, when you rouse yourself, you despise them as phantoms. Here is the victory that the, palm, that the psalmist attains to break free from the trap Satan has laid. He had been beguiled by what he had seen in the world. In his flesh, he had been encouraged to walk by sight and not by faith. He was tempted to seek the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, the pride of life. But in looking once again to God, he is given the right perspective. He was given discernment and was shown that grace and faith prevail, that justice and righteousness overcome. He begins to, by confessing that to have given voice to his earlier complaint would have been akin to the betrayal of his fellows, the faithful, the family of God, the very ones that by their universal experience are the benefactors of God's goodness. And we are shown that it's not on his own that he is able to draw this conclusion. On his own, he had been tempted by the temporal prosperity of the world. On his own, he had despaired of his struggles, his trials, his sufferings. On his own, he had begun to question the purpose of cleanness and innocence before God and would have openly questioned God's goodness. Dealing with it on his own had simply worn him out. But thankfully, God does not leave us alone. God does not sit idly by and wait for us to come to the right conclusion. No, in fact, God has given us something. He has given us his spirit and his word. In the worry and trouble of our mind, when we cannot make sense of the contradiction of our troubled lives with what we feel should be our lot, the Holy Spirit draws us into his sanctuary, into Christ, into his word. It is here that we are giving understanding and discernment. We, like the psalmist, can pray to God and he will, give, he will make the matter clear to us. When the psalmist prayed to God, then he understood the wretched end of the worldly and the, God, and the ungodly. That is why we must make God's sanctuary our resort when our souls are tempted. As important as acknowledging the truth of God's goodness towards his people, we need to know that there is only one place to go where we will find victory over the temptations of this temporal world. And notice what discernment is given the psalmist. The very people that he had envied, the arrogant, wicked, with their prosperity, are destined to fall to ruin. God has set them on slippery ground. He, is, he will bring them to ruin. They will be destroyed in a moment. They will be utterly swept away by tears. The prosperity of the wicked is temporal, short, and uncertain. Their enjoyments end in destruction. How could one be anything other than miserable without a hope in the future? Their prosperity is illusory. It's 
It's vanity, it is vapor, it has no permanence, and is as insubstantial as a dream. Everyone knows what the end of this life is. Each of us will face death someday, and, that, and what hope, what solace, what comfort will anything temporal bring us then? For those who do not know their God, their Creator, who see their lives passing and see the end coming, what good is their enjoyment, which they know will soon be gone? Their prosperity is, in that sense, no blessing from God, but rather the means by which he, his, his wrath is built up, all the more for their eventual punishment and destruction. The psalmist, having received the discernment of the end of things for the temporal world, finds himself now with a stronger and unshakable faith. Realizing that the wicked's prosperity ends in destruction, he recognizes the true misery of their condition. He will see that the, the afflictions of the righteous end in peace, and that is why they are happy. This blessed realization of the truth about his lot over that of the wicked Compel him to declare the benefits of God's goodness towards his people. So let's look at the remainder of the verses. When my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in heart, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast toward you. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel, and afterward, you will receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For behold, those who are far from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. But for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge that I may tell of all your works. The benefits. Now that he has had time to reflect upon the vexation of his temptation to envy and discontent, the psalmist confesses he was brutish and ignorant. And he begins to understand how his deliverance from this temptation is yet another great sign of God's goodness. Often in life we will find ourselves surprised by the strength of this sudden temptation to be envious of those around us who, though ungodly, seem to prosper. And we will look back upon it with sorrow and shame, seeing how close we came to saying or acting, or thinking something amiss. Yet we, like the psalmist, must recognize that our safe deliverance from temptation is, attributed, is attributable to the gracious presence of God with us and to Christ's intercession for us. Therefore, let us consider long and hard 
the immensity of the benefits we have in Christ. Even in the midst of our most brutish and ignorant behaviors, God is continually with us. And we who have committed ourselves to God are guided by the counsel of his word and his spirit, who is the best of all counselors. And we have the promise to be received into his eternal glory when our sojourn in this temporal one is done. Such a hope and prospect will surely reconcile us to whatever travails us in the interim. And even above and beyond the glories of heaven lie the very presence and love of the Lord Jesus Christ who promises to be our all in all. This is the truth of the matter. The poorest and most wretched sinner who renounces all other portion and confidence and lays hold of Christ has gained everything and lost nothing. The world and all of its glories, its pleasures and delights will all vanish. The body will fail, falling to sickness, age, and death. Worry and doubt and confusion will prevail in all who are far from God. But for those who are continually with him, he is their strength and portion forever. This is the true perspective on life. There's really nothing on earth to be, be desired than to know God and to be near him and to have him holding your hand. To envy those who are doomed to perish is utter foolishness. Furthermore, the fact is, of course, that those who are far from God in many instances do suffer greatly. And many who are faithful and humble before God do prosper and enjoy his blessings in this life. It is only our faulty assumptions that these conditions should follow the calculus of our limited perceptions and understanding. We cannot understand even the limited amount we do perceive. Yet Jesus has made clear, clear to us only what the ultimate outcomes will be for those who belong to him and those who do not. Our lives will have trouble, but we are not to fear. He is always with us. The world will hate us as it hates him, but he has overcome the world. Regardless of what God blesses us with in this life or what trials and sufferings he sends our way, Jesus commands us to follow him, serve him, and to place our faith, hope, and trust in him. You see, God's providence is not something explained to us. But it is the conclusion that we draw from what is revealed to us concerning God in his word. God tells us that he knows the end from the beginning, therefore whatever occurs in the lifetime of an individual leads inevitably to God's determined purpose. Isaiah 46.10 Jesus tells us that not a single sparrow falls to the ground apart from the Father's will, so we should not fret over the events of our lives, for we are greatly valued by him. 
Matthew 10, 29-31. And we are assured that what God has revealed to us in His Word is for us and our children, that we might live godly lives that are pleasing before Him, and that we might enjoy His blessing. But God has not revealed everything to us. Secret things, those things that He has not revealed, remain with Him and Him alone. Deuteronomy 29, 29. So regardless of our situation in this present moment, we, like the psalmist, should make no other choice but to cling tightly to God because it is good to be near Him. How readily apparent is it that our flesh and our hearts will fail us? Do our feelings not lead us swiftly to covetousness? Does Satan not know our weakness and how to exploit them? Sin has removed humanity far from God. But for his own, God has taken them by their right hand and he holds them close to his side. So it is God who gives strength to our hearts when we are tempted. He is the one who supplies us an eternal portion that will never fail. Indeed, God is good to his people. How then can we envy those who are far from him? Therefore, be assured that God will be your refuge. He will continually be with you and guide you. And he will ultimately receive you into glory. Enjoy and delight in the goodness of being near him. And use the opportunity to tell others what he has done for you. Let's pray. Our loving and good Heavenly Father, Train us to see this world with the right perspective. Guide us by your spirit and counsel us by the wisdom of your word. Set our hearts and minds upon Christ and the glory of our coming union with him in eternity. Hold us close and draw us into your truth when we stumble and slip, drawn away by the temptation of a world at enmity with you. Forgive us and correct us when we covet what others have when we cease to desire desire you alone and nothing else. Teach us to delight in your correction that we might count it all joy when we face the trials that you send our way, knowing that the testing of our faith produces steadfastness and that its full effect is to perfect and complete our faith and character that they lack in nothing. Thank you for being our sanctuary and refuge. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, as we uh, close out with our last song in worship here, I invite you to stand with me.